Well, it is critical that it is well with our souls because regularly it is not well. It is not well around us, right? And lots of people, lots of our friends, lots of our family members here at, at our church are going through difficult times, tough times, and it's not always well. And, and uh, so many of, have lost loved ones over this. I think about this last six-month span or so or year and, and I realized that, um, that it's a difficult time, difficult times, difficult times in some families and pressure times. So it's not always well, but it can always be well with our soul. And that's uh, crucial that we, we uh, spend our days when it is good making sure that our heart is good with God, that our, our situation is strong with the Lord so that when it isn't well, it can be well with our souls. One of the songs we sang tonight really reminds us that the Lord God himself is there for us at all times, watching over us. Psalm 121, such a great psalm of encouragement and strength. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. Not just a nation, but you personally. Think about that as you lay your head down tonight. The Lord will watch over you all night long. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. A song that was a psalm that was to be sung and and rejoiced over as people made their way to worship the Lord, moving toward Jerusalem. Our Father and our God tonight, we we pause to uh, kind of bring together the thoughts of our singing and our hearing from the word of God and, and some of the thoughts about situations in our lives, the lives that are represented here tonight and some that aren't here tonight, but I think about the hearts that are heavy and families that are strained. I think of, of concerns about jobs and job loss, income, needed income. I think about others who are waiting for results of tests from medical practitioners and concerned about those things. I think about the many requests that come our way. On any given week, Lord, about the number of people who are um, finding themselves in an unwell situation, perhaps physically or um, in the surroundings, but Lord God, we must make sure that it is well with our soul. And so I pray that we might um, concentrate on that and focus on that, focus on our relationship with you. As we've been uh, digging into the, uh, your word in, in Galatians, your word to us about nurturing that relationship with the Spirit of God, to walk in the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, to um, give over control to the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to say yes to the living God, that we, might ha- uh, that we might have the Spirit of God in control of our lives so that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will not fear evil because you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they accompany us, comfort us. So our God, um, tonight as we open up your word again, thank you for reminding us that you are the God who watches over us both day and night. You never sleep, you never slumber. You don't need to sleep or slumber. You are the God who spoke the universe into existence from nothing, and it was. The sun will not hurt us by day because you're in charge of the sun. The moon cannot hurt us because you created the moon. 
Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So our Father, I pray tonight that as we um, wrap up our day together uh, from this part of it and look forward to the week that lies before us, I pray that our hearts might be encouraged to know that you are God. You are the sovereign God in charge, God. Nothing happens outside of your control. You watch over us. You love us. You care for us. You refresh us. You give us strength for the journey. You set the journey before us. You keep us safe from things we don't even know about. And yet, Father, you allow things in our lives that will keep us on track with being dependent upon you, relying on you, not leaning on our own strength or our own understanding, but in all ways acknowledging you, having you direct our paths. This is the way we want to live, Lord. This is the way our congregation wants to go. So I pray, Father, that you would once again speak boldly to our lives from your word tonight as we look at it with a freshness and anticipation, expectation, Father, that the Spirit of God is going to speak to us and minister to our hearts, bring something to us that we need tonight to grant us strength and encouragement. I pray that that will happen, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me, if you would, please, to Galatians chapter 3. I think we all agree in this room that what is taught and believed must always be rooted in the Scriptures. And what we finally believe is anchored what has been revealed to us by the Word of God. It must be the final arbitrator of what we believe and how we live. Not twisted, not manipulated, not revisioned, not removed from the common man, but what is laid out for us in the scriptures, revealed and heard and trusted to be true. These are the things that guide our lives. To those confident in the scriptures then, and the Apostle Paul was addressing a people, for the most part, who were confident in the scriptures. The Judaizers who came to to, to sort of cause some disturbance uh, that from their perspective was, was um, right-spirited, even though it ended up being wrong theologically. But they had in their hearts, I believe, the, the desire to, to track with the Scriptures. And so the Apostle Paul appealed to the Scriptures, and rightfully so. He wanted to assure them that what he was teaching was not something new, was not some new theology that he had developed sitting out in the desert somewhere and It was now foisting on a group of people. So you're going to find as we move through Galatians, he spends a lot of time not just laying out the theology, but describing where he gets this this thinking from. It was the gospel that he brought was Old Testament sourced. This was not something new. And that the law of Moses did fit, but not how they were trying to retrofit it into the gospel. That the law was enshrined within a covenant, within a promise, and they needed to see that. And it wasn't the promise, it wasn't the promise, it was a, the law itself wasn't the promise, it was a vehicle to get to the promise. It wasn't the goal, the law of Moses wasn't the goal, it was the means to the goal. So um, hopefully our confidence here at Calvary is in the divine enabling of God to enable us to comprehend and act upon the scriptures. And uh, if we allow that confidence in the scriptures, in what God has given to us, and his willingness to enable us to embrace and respond and welcome the scriptures, if that's eroded, we have nothing. We can't allow our confidence to be eroded in the Word of God. And so Paul didn't want their confidence to be eroded at all in the Word of God. What he wanted to show them is that the plan of God always was, is, and always will be to fulfill His promise. And he wanted them to understand how that fit into the whole theology of the gospel. 
And I, I would submit to you that um, Paul goes back to this kind of teaching in reg- regularly in a variety of epistles. And so I want to just get, kind of get in the trenches tonight with you and do some, some old-fashioned verse-by-verse look at the text and, and, and uh, flesh out what it has for us there. Because you can't really insta- understand the intended um, storyline, really, of the whole Bible unless you allow this, what Paul is going to teach us from verses 8 on, to grab hold of us. So um, that's why Paul starts out from verse 6 and says, consider Abraham. You know, we're into New Testament theology. He's into an, an Old Testament believing community. Not the new believers, not the new fresh believers, but, but the Jews that were coming to Christ, but the ones who had come from Jerusalem. And he's talking to an Old Testament community, and he's, so the first thing he says to them is, consider Abraham. Now, that was lingo they could handle, right? You understand that? When you're talking to a, a, an Old Testament Jewish context, a group of people, and you say, now consider Abraham. Now Paul's talking our language. And so he goes on to explain the whole theology of Abraham, and we're going to do that as best we can. Um, let's, let's read from verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see what Paul's done here already? He said the gospel is found in the Old Testament. It's not something new. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers... Let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say into seeds, many, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, is, in His grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by law, by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this, faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. This is the word of God. Now perhaps a lot of you have read through this text before and said, I'm just going to get to the practical stuff. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because this is pretty complicated, or it seems complicated as you read through it. Well, I, I think it's important for us not to do that, not to skip over this. And, and so um, I, I hope you'd, you'd just like to follow me with some, some important and good old-fashioned teaching through this text because um, it, it really does speak a powerful message of the gospel to us and the intention. Now, um, as I said to you at, 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 by way of introduction, the Apostle Paul was 
trying to make sure that those who were questioning or concerned about his theology and his teaching would come to terms with what he was telling them and we would become settled with the theology that he was teaching them, introduces the idea and reminds them that they ought to think about Abraham and the theology that Abraham brings. Now, why was it important, particularly um, when you're talking to a group of people who were really passionate about the law of Moses and functioning under the law of Moses, why was it important for the Apostle Paul to say to them, consider Abraham. Why go to Abraham? Anybody? He's speaking of anybody except kind of pastors in here. Why Abraham? First of the forefathers. So he had status, a stature for sure. Keep in mind now, he's, he's, he's addressing people and he's saying to them, you don't need to practice the law of Moses, the laws of Moses to be saved. Now why is it important to go to Abraham for that? Abraham predated Moses. Absolutely, predated the law. That's a, that's, a, like, that's a concluding, like that's a slam dunk right there. Bang. Consider Abraham. And he's basically looking at them and saying, how was Abraham saved? And what would their answer be? By faith. Case closed. Because the, the, whole, pro, the whole issue here was, uh, the Apostle Paul was advocating salvation through grace, God's grace, by faith in Christ alone. And the Apostle Paul says, Abraham, who they revered. How was Abraham saved? By grace through faith. As he's pointed out, the gospel was presented there in Christ. No difference. Old Testament, New Testament. He believed God. It was credited to him. In fact, he was justified by his faith. It's never been any different. Never will be any different. That's the message of the Bible. Justification is by faith, not by works. Neither in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament. There's no different theology being presented here by Paul. He's actually telling the Judaizers, you're mistaken in your theology. If you really knew your theology, you would not be coming up here telling these people that they should be practicing the law of Moses in order to be saved. You would be saying, you need to be saved by faith just like our father Abraham was. This is crucial. He taught this to the Galatians. He taught this to the Romans. He taught this to the Corinthians. He had to keep teaching them the same thing. Frankly, he has to teach it to us. He has to teach it to the New Testament community. He believed God, period. And it was reckoned unto him as faith. He was justified by his faith. In verse 9, it says there, so those, therefore, Paul says, so those who have faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. He's talking, he's saying to Galatians, you want to be people of faith? Do you want to be men and women of faith like your forefather Abraham? And trust in God, believe in God. In verse 10, he follows it up with the contrast. In contrast, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. What do you want, Paul says? Blessing or cursing? It's the grace of faith in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So um, he says in verse 13... That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who, who is hung on a tree. Now, parenthetical thought here. Could Jesus have been electrocuted for our sins? Could Jesus have been drowned for our sins? 
Could Jesus have been slashed with a sword to death for our sins? No, he had to hang on a tree for our sins. Now, Paul is making, as he said earlier in this this letter, he said, I postered Jesus for you. I postered the crucifixion for you. And he's saying this this in itself was the sovereign work of God the Father, making sure every particular detail of our redemption unfolded as it was prophesied, as it's been taught in the Old Testament Scriptures. That in order for the law to be taken care of, in order for our sins to be taken care of, the Messiah, the the one who would come, the, the suffering Messiah would have to hang on a tree. And so Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law that he's talking about? Is the law bad? Well, I, I want to save that from it. No, it's not bad. I don't know if any of us know this, but someone has counted, and I'm just taking their word for it because I didn't do it, that there are 242 positive laws and 365 prohibition laws in the Old Testament. Now, that math equals, if I'm right, and one of these guys up here will tell me if I'm wrong, 607. So there are 607 laws in the Old Testament. And the requirement to be perfect before God is to keep always, every day of your life, perfectly, 607 of these laws. Which, now, how many of you can keep Hardly any laws. Like, can you drive your car the speed limit every single day of your life? (laughs) You're all going to hell. (laughs) That's just one law. Cursed, the curse of the law. And he says in the text that If you're going to live by the law, then you have to live perfectly with every single law. 607 of them. Every single day of your life. Every minute of your life. You break one of them. One time. And you have failed to live righteously before God. And what are we going to do about that? What can mankind do about that? Nothing. God has done everything for us to take care of that. This is what Christ is all about. Christ has redeemed us or purchased us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. By taking our sinfulness upon him, by taking our sins upon himself, he goes to the cross. That's why in John 1.29 it says, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away what? The sin of the world. He became our substitute, went to the cross. He was deliberately substituted for us. In verse 14, why? In order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. A one-time act. If sins could have been taken care of by the sacrificial system of the Old Testament then why did they have to go day by day by day and offer sacrifices? That wasn't, that wouldn't take care of the sins of people. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away our sins. There was a one-time act, a one-time sacrificial act, once for all. The sinless Son of God went to the cross and died on the cross to purchase us out of the slave market of sin and the slave market to ourselves that we might serve him, that we might serve the Savior, that we might be forgiven of our sins. Daily sacrifice is in fact testified to human inadequacy. Why? So that we might receive the promise, what is it? Of the Spirit. This very thing that Paul is teaching about was always the plan of God. 
that sins would be taken care of, a once-for-all sacrifice would be taken care of, so that the blessing that was promised to Abraham could come to people, the promise of the Spirit by faith. So he says to them, this is what you're witnessing in Galatia. The very thing. God is keeping his promise. This was the promise that was given in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is Old Testament teaching. I will not, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by, by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And when Peter was preaching about this teaching from the Old Testament, Peter, the Apostle Peter himself, teaching about these things in the book of Acts, he is saying when they were noting all these things that, that were coming upon them, He's writing the the text, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and on and on. He goes, and he says, brother, this, this is what was promised to us. This was what was promised to our forefather, our father Abraham, the promise, the blessing of the Holy Spirit of God. To understand rightly the theology of the Bible, it is the promise of God to people of the indwelling presence of God in the life of those who by faith follow him, serve him, trust in him. It's an agreement that God committed himself to irrevocably. That's why he goes down in verse 15 and says... All of this that I've been teaching you is a covenant that was given to Abraham. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. He's saying, now think about a covenant God makes. And then he says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, not seeds. Seed, singular. Paul says, see, right there, this promise was about Christ. The true seed of Abraham. Abraham, the faith man. That it would be a single family of faith. Faith people. The new humanity, a new community, a single family of God. By faith, receiving the Spirit of God is the evidence that they're, they're in the family of God. They've received the blessing. In verse 18, he says, For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But this is all about a promise, he says. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise, not through law. He gave him this promise of the Holy Spirit. It's not personal performance. Not according to law keeping, but according to promise giving of the Lord. And in verse 17, he says, what if I mean this? Or what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later after Abraham does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. The promise stands, which no laws can change, he says, is established by God. So what was the purpose of the law then? Verse 19. He asked the question. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. It was temporary and lesser. The promise survives the promise of the Lord, the promise of the coming of Christ, the promise of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit of God endures. But the laws 
are temporary. And therefore, since they're temporary, they're lesser than the promise. Until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Promise is upon us. The temporary can never be greater than the permanent. Secondly, we, we understand by, by uh, our own study of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 27, 28, and the, and the like, which obviously Paul is referring to, he makes the point that its blessings, the blessings of the law were conditioned on ifs. If you keep the law, then you will be blessed. Promise is all about grace. Not because we deserved it, not because we merited it, but because of God's grace he blessed us with salvation. Deuteronomy 28, verse 2. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. That's not true of a, of a believer. There is now, therefore, what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you go out of this room tonight and you sin, I'm going to receive a curse from God. If we sin and we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The righteous demands of the law are fulfilled in us through the Holy Spirit. Once the Spirit of God moves into us, he enables us and empowers us to fulfill the desires of God, to fulfill the demands of the law. Romans 7, 4. Now, um, notice verse 19 to 20. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. It Paul's like a lawyer here, pecking away at issue upon issue. But I have to think this one must have pricked his heart deeply. You know why I say that? I don't know if he learned this only from Stephen, but he learned this from Stephen. Now, why am I saying that would prick Paul's heart? Anybody? Hmm? I hear murmuring, but I don't hear. Yeah, he was responsible. He was there witnessing the execution of Stephen. And thinking, when he's thinking about this argument, because in Acts chapter 7, verse 53... This is Stephen's sermon to those who are going to stone him and kill him for the same issues. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Now Paul comes back here and writes, the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. You know, I have to think he must have thought, Wow, the amazing grace of God. I was part and parcel of that execution of that godly man, Stephen, who taught the truth of God's word. And, and I was, I, I, it may have softened Paul's heart a little bit to the Galatians. He'd called them foolish and bewitched and all of that. But maybe by the time he got there, he thought, wait a second, I once was like this. I wasn't receiving this. I wasn't responding to this. The law came by a mediator, by means of angels, mediated through Moses. But the promise came directly from God to Abraham. No mediator. Paul says, this came straight from God to Abraham. Promise came from God personally. This is why the promise is far superior to the law. 
But you see, the Jews were all excited about the law. You know why? Because it came with thunder and lightning and a light show and a great big spectacular event. The promise came to Abraham privately. Just God and Abraham and a bunch of animals that lost their lives. You know that thing in Genesis 15 where he cut the animals and made the promise? Basically said to Abraham, uh, let it be to me as has happened to these animals if I would ever break my promise to you. That my promise has come into effect by sacrifice. But Paul quickly says, but the law can't give life. That's the bottom line. The law can't give life. The scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner's sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. For if the law had been given, verse 21, that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But it can't. It can't give life. So then, is the law at odds with the promise? thousand times no the law is a complement to the promise of God how so when Adam and Eve's decision brought spiritual death the only recovery was spiritual life the law can't bring life only who can bring life the spirit brings life the law can't bring life only the spirit can bring life When Adam and Eve broke the law of God, when they sinned against God, spiritual death came. The recovery that's required is spiritual life. Spiritual life can't come from the law because the law can't give life. So only the Holy Spirit can bring life. That's Paul's argument here. Human behavior can't bring life to what is dead. So the law was given... He writes here to reveal sin when transgressions came to show how woefully inadequate and insufficient are the best of human intentions so that people would see their need to turn to promise in Christ alone. And he gives them an example here in verses 23 to 26. Before the law, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ or became our schoolmaster. The idea here is that it was our personal protector. It was the it was the, the guardian to we as, as children, prescribing to us the way to live, regulating our life until the Spirit of God moved into our life and changed us. So Paul, of course, was brought up by the law, but certainly not born through the law. The law was to get us ready for the promise of God that is in place and explains all of God's purposes for man with respect to God. We were not made for the law, but for promise. Look at what promise can do. Verse 27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The promise has has made us one with Christ, enabling us to clothe ourselves with Christ Jesus. Enabling us to, to live with this divine indwelling presence. And live out the desires of God in our lives that no human being could ever possibly do. It's enabled us to have racial reconciliation, to be brought into one family, one amazing family. We, rec- we regularly testify about this to each other when we go around the world and we meet other people. Warring factions all over the world, races that can't stand each other, races that hate each other. But within those races are Christian communities who love each other and, 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 and 
mortal enemies in, in political scenarios who are in the, Christ, in, the, in the church of Jesus Christ love one another. What, what a blessed event it was for me to first discover um, at Benan's church in Istanbul. Uh, in the service, there were people from Iraq, Iran, um, Armenia, Turkey, worshiping together, hugging one another, loving the Lord together. Now, come on, Iraqis and Iranians and, and Armenians. You know how much Armenians can't stand Turkish people, how much they hate each other? It goes back almost 100 years to great massacres and all kinds of political uh, uh, things. Greeks loving Turks, Turks loving Greeks. This is not natural. This is not normal. This is the evidence of the promise granted to Abraham through faith that the law could never, ever accomplish. The law could never force people to love one another or serve one another or or respond to Christ. And so the grand plan of God is promise. His promise to us, fulfilled in Christ Jesus. If you're... If you're to understand the the theology of history itself, of biblical history, you must line it up around the promise. And with this, we'll conclude tonight how what God is doing relates to what he has promised in all around us. If you want to understand the world around you and what's going on and and how the church relates and how God functions in the church and how how he connects all of these dots, let me just give you about seven points, which, hey, look at that. That's a biblical number. Seven concluding points with the, the idea of, of how God is, is relating to what he has promised. And the first is this, in, in concluding all of this. Before the law was given to Moses, promise was made to Abraham. So therefore, promise always overrules religion. Always. Religion's purpose is to bring us to God. It is not the goal in itself. The goal is Christ Jesus, always. It always has been. Promise overrules religion. That's what Paul's teaching them here. Secondly, Abraham, it was promised in Genesis 12, 2 to 3, would have a great name, and so he has, and would be made into a great nation, which explains Israel's existence and survival. This little tiny group of people with all living in a very ugly neighborhood. But it's a promise that was given to Abraham. I will make you into a great name and make you into a great nation. But by the way, that nation has expanded and is extended to the people of God. That's who the great nation is. It's the people of God. Thirdly, through sacrifice, God has established his relationship with his people by faith always, which explains the cross. Fourthly, the promise is put in place by grace and is applied by God through faith and obedience. It's never been about human merit. Abraham did nothing to gain the favor of God. In fact, Abraham was living out his life in a pagan family, in a pagan community. And the living God came and interrupted his life. Not because of anything good that Abraham did, but because of God's grace and God's choice to choose Abraham and make a great name of him and a great nation and that all the nations in the world would be blessed through Abraham's seed. It's because God, in his great sovereign Uh, plan determined that this would be the man and through his family would come the family of faith. It's an amazing thing. And so it has demonstrated for all time that it's not about human merit. It's never about our acceptability to God. It's always about God's grace toward us. He rescued us. Paul makes an elaborate 
elaborate argument in Romans chapter 4 that if it had anything to do with us, then we earned our wages. And you know yourself that you're never really thankful for your wages. You really think you deserve them. When that paycheck comes to you at the end of the week or every second week or at the end of the month or however you get paid, do you go running to your boss and say, thank you a thousand times, thank you, bowing at his feet, saying, oh, I didn't deserve this, I'm so unworthy, but you gave me a paycheck? No, because we really believe in our hearts. While we may think we are compensated far more than we deserve, we still think we deserve to be compensated. If salvation were gained by works or merit, we would never have hearts of thanksgiving toward God. We would simply look heavenward and say, I deserved all of this. I'm a good little boy. Look at me. I'm a good little... If you're a girl, I'm a good little girl. I'm not ready to say I'm a good little girl. That'd be like disastrous on a weekend like this. I, I, you know, wouldn't we be saying, I, I you know, listen, Lord... Um, I don't really feel like I need to put myself out for you because after all, I've really earned everything I have. But no, from the beginning of the scriptures right through to the end of the scriptures, it's always been about the grace of God. And so it is with Abraham. Always being initiated by God. So Paul says, listen, Judaizers, hightail it back to Jerusalem if you're going to try and infect my new church up here with your teaching that somehow they can earn their salvation by keeping the law of Moses. Your forefather Abraham never did that. He never taught that. He never would have taught that. And if he was in this church right now, he'd chase you back to Jerusalem himself. That's what he taught. Before Abraham was circumcised. He was justified. Do you understand that? Circumcision came several chapters later. Abraham believed God, believed what he heard, acted on it, and by faith was saved. It was reckoned unto him as righteous. He was declared by God righteous. And he wasn't circumcised. So I don't know, Paul says, what you're teaching. But what you're teaching is not the word of God. It is not what Abraham taught. Fifthly, the world is blessed and is of the family of Abraham by faith in the promise and not by race or ritual. Look at Galatians 3, 7. Note this very carefully. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Who are the people of God? Who are the people of faith? Who are the children of Abraham? Answer me the question. We are. Not some unbelieving Jew in Jerusalem. The promises, the blessings that are promised to Abraham are promised to Abraham and his offspring by faith. This is incredibly important for us to know and understand. It's not by race. It's not by ritual. It's by faith that we are in the family of God. Whatever race you are. Six. The blessings, therefore, of the promise belong to the faithful and not the nationalistic. In other words, the church. Not a nation or race of unbelievers. So here's the promise I claim for myself and for you. Genesis chapter 12. With this we'll conclude. Some of you go home really happy. Others of you will say, 
this man's theology is different. But it isn't different than the Bible. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So who are the blessings for? Who are Abraham's blessings for? Us. Who are the curses against? Hmm? Anybody who messes with us. I'm serious. That's what the Bible teaches. God is saying this as a promise to you. You mess with my people, I'm going to mess with you. You bless my people, and I'll bless you. So take that little baby into work tomorrow morning. <laughs> Say to your pagan boss, don't be talking to me, Rebecca, in here tomorrow. <laughs> you mess with me, and God's going to mess with you. You give me a raise, and God may make you more profitable. I'm serious. I think that's a promise to us. Maybe not the econ- economic stuff, but sure, the blessing, cursing stuff is a promise to us because the plan of God is promise. Law was to schoolmaster us because of sinfulness to show us how far we fall short of the glory of God Till we respond by faith to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. It's the same in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. Paul taught it then. We teach it now. That's, that's the Bible, folks. Our Father, thank you tonight for helping us wade through a fairly complex section of Scripture. And Lord, we, we haven't even begun to mine the depths of, of that section at all. But Lord, I pray that you'd take and bless it, bless the, uh, the, the teaching that is, is uh, uh, founded in your word. Lord, whatever was said that wasn't uh, um, precise with respect to your word, then may that pass away. But Lord, what was, was presented here tonight that was according to your word and, and accurate according to your word, may it embed itself in our hearts and uh, bring us great delight, Father, in our lives as we live out the application of what it means to be people of promise, the promise of God. I mean, think about it, Lord. We're trying to think about this as we just pray to you right now and call out to you. You, the living God, the God of the universe who called everything into existence, has made a promise to us, and you always keep your promise that you would bring to us a Savior, and that by believing in that Savior, we have our sins forgiven. And to have our sins forgiven would mean our guilt would be removed. And that we would be indwelt by the living presence of God through the Holy Spirit of God. That we could live a life that pleased you, declared righteous before you, and, 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 and taken care of throughout the journey until we're with you forever. That's your promise to us, Lord. Thank you so much. We praise you for the gospel. It's good news, truly good news to us. Now help us to live it out with passion and confidence, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.